Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19. Pick up on a well-beloved story. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Oh, what good news this is, Heavenly Father. That you sent your Son to save the lost and that your Son came to do that very thing. We're so thankful for the work of salvation which only You could orchestrate and only You could bring to pass. I pray this morning as we contemplate a well-beloved story afresh and anew that You would teach us and grow us. They would see the glories and the splendor of Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. And we would see Him reaching out to us a mess of sinners in need of grace. May our thoughts, may our attitudes, may our reflections, may our behavior all give glory to You, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, in the chapter prior to this, in Luke 18, we read the following words from Jesus. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, as is the case with many statements in the Scriptures, it is possible to draw wrongful conclusions When words like those are taken completely out of context, does Jesus mean by those statements that all rich people are barred entrance into God's kingdom? Does everyone have to sell everything that they have in order to be saved? Is Jesus advocating asceticism? Is money itself evil? Is that what Jesus is trying to say? Well, we obviously know the answer to that is no. 
We know that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself that's bad. Money itself is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It's what we do with money that matters. Or perhaps better said, it's what money does to us that is the most telling thing about our hearts. You see, money is both a tool that can be used for good or ill, but it's also an indicator of our heart's condition. And Jesus knew what was going on in this rich young ruler's heart, the way that money had captured his heart. And as a result, Jesus pinpoints the very thing, the idol in this man's heart, when he says to him, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor and come and follow me. That man goes away sad because he was rich. His heart was set on earthly riches. Then when Jesus gives this impossible analogy of the difficulty in entering the kingdom of God, He says that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples exclaim at that moment, then who can be saved? We understand that we're reading Jesus' analogy right there, by the way, if we respond the same way the disciples did. Jesus isn't just saying it's kind of difficult. He's saying it's impossible. So the disciples respond to this. Well, then who can be saved? Because all of their life they operated under the general assumption that riches equal blessing. And blessing means God's favor. And if you're in God's favor, then certainly you have participation in God's kingdom. But Jesus is teaching something quite different here. Because money is no aid towards salvation. Because you can't buy your way into God's kingdom. And oftentimes money can actually serve as a deterrent. Blinding people to their real state before God. That's the danger of riches. Is that people think that they're self-sufficient. When in reality all that they have was a gift to them from the Lord. Our situation can sometimes be much like that of the Laodiceans that are warned and rebuked in those seven letters to the churches in the first chapters of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this rebuke comes to that church saying, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, those believers in Laodicea, Laodicea was famous for all of these things. It was a wealthy city. It was a city known for its clothing. It was a city known for a particular eye ointment that it produced. And here the Lord Jesus says, because of all these things, you've failed to see that what you really need is Me. You need to come to Me. Because all this earthly stuff is not going to help you with your deepest need. Earthly riches can deceive people into believing that they have no need, when in reality, even those who might be earthly rich or poor have a spiritual poverty that needs to be dealt with. But does this mean that there's no hope for wealthy people? No. It's not what Jesus is saying. The answer is honestly the same for both rich and poor. When Jesus says, the things that are impossible for man or with people are possible with God. So while it is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, what's impossible for the rich man is possible for God. God can do what we cannot. Whether you're rich or poor, entrance into God's kingdom, 
you are unable to accomplish, but what you can't accomplish, God can. Now, we couldn't be taught this lesson any more frankly than be presented with two salvations from the opposite end of the financial spectrum. Last week, we noticed Jesus healing and saving a couple of blind beggars on the side of the road just outside of Jericho. This morning, we see Jesus dining and saving a rich tax collector. How much further across the financial spectrum could we go? A couple of blind beggars on the side of the road to now this rich chief tax collector. These episodes in Jesus' ministry dissolve any attempt to see salvation as limited to a particular sort of person. Luke 18 represents the poor being saved. Luke 19, the rich. And now added to this, the reality that this man was not only rich, but he had gained at least partially some of his wealth through extortion. This man was socially ostracized. He was a servant of Rome, a foreign nation. He belonged to a class of people that were nearly universally hated. In fact, one of the few things in common that these two episodes have, the blind man on the side of the road and this rich tax collector, is the way in which the crowd overlooked them in connection with Jesus. With the beggars in Luke 18, remember what the crowd did when the beggars started shouting out, Mercy us, son of David! What does the crowd do? Hush, 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 quiet, quiet, silent. They're no help to them. They're annoyed by the beggars. And here in Luke 19, the crowd's angry that Jesus would pay this tax collector any attention. They try to silence the beggars who cried out to Jesus, and they stand in the way of the tax collector who longed to see and discover who Jesus really was. Yet despite all the opposition of the crowd, in both cases, Jesus manifests His grace and mercy. This is what's so glorious. The Gospel defies all social categorizations. It's no respecter of class or finances or religious pedigree. And there's no sin that they cannot wipe away. There's no one so lost that they cannot be saved by Jesus. And what hope there is in that thought and in that fact. In God's purposes, Zacchaeus, an unclean outsider, would be cleansed and invited into God's family. But this invitation could only be extended because Jesus, God's own Son, would become the ultimate outsider in dying a death to save us from the death that we all have earned and which He didn't deserve. The one called a traitor could now be called a son because God's only begotten Son would be condemned in the traitor's stead. And that reality would change everything for Zacchaeus. And for that matter, all outsiders who are made sons. In the sermon entitled the, An Uninvited Guest, I'd like to highlight the two main characters that are present in this drama and point out a glaring detail that they have in common. They were both uninvited. They were both uninvited in a manner of speaking. First of all, we'll contemplate the uninvited Zacchaeus and rejoice that the Gospel makes outsiders sons. And then we'll look at the uninvited Jesus and recognize that the Gospel required a son become an outsider. First of all, the uninvited Zacchaeus, the glorious truth that the Gospel makes outsiders sons. First of all, we have Zacchaeus described Luke is the only gospel to record the story of Zacchaeus. 
But he is a favorite of children's stories, isn't he? I wonder if it's that children just identify with his shortness. Because kids get that. Or maybe it's because kids get climbing trees. Somehow as we get older, we just don't get climbing trees so much anymore. Or perhaps it's because the song is so very catchy. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed him by, he looked up in the tree and he said, say it with me, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus' name comes from a Hebrew word meaning clean or innocent. Ironic, isn't it? Everyone who knew Zacchaeus and ever mentioned his name would think he was anything but clean or innocent. Not only was this man rich, but he had gotten his riches, at least in part, by extortion. Serving as a tax collector, that meant, first of all, you serve for an oppressive foreign government. Think about this. We've all encountered some tax increases in recent days. We don't enjoy those very much. We don't really care for taxes all that much. But here in America, we think really big about the idea of you know, taxation without representation is like the worst horrible thing ever. Well, imagine in those days, if you were serving as a tax collector, you're not now just an IRS agent for our own government, men that we have elected and are serving and representing us, but you're representing a foreign government. It's as if China had exercised control over the United States. And then some among us became collectors for China. And not only were you collecting funds for a foreign government, but oftentimes this whole practice was riddled with a whole lot of deceit and stealing. Zacchaeus here is referred to as a sinner by the crowds. He's not referred to as a Gentile. So it becomes quite evident that here we have a Jew who is considered of the worst state of all, a traitor. He's working for someone else. He's working for the enemy. And add to this that Zacchaeus is not merely a tax collector, but he's the chief tax collector. only place that this phrase happens in the New Testament. This probably means that Zacchaeus served as an administrative head in Jericho over many tax collectors. So he's not only representative of Rome, but he's representative of Rome in a really big way because he serves by making sure all the other tax collectors are doing their job. He's like that manager that makes sure that everybody else is doing their thing. right? He's applying the pressure to all of the other tax collectors He was probably doing his own amount of tax collecting on the side as well. And as is typically the case, the way these things work is the more times that money changes hands, what happens? Everyone exacts a fee. Usually we like to buy as direct as possible from the manufacturer because if there's eight people in between me and the person who produced the product, that means eight people got paid along the way, right? So here's Zacchaeus. He's a guy who's collecting all these funds and passing it on along. He was rich. But he had no friends. He lived in Jericho. This is an important fact as well because it contributes to getting an idea of just how rich Zacchaeus probably was. Jericho, as I already mentioned last time, was located to the northeast of Jerusalem. And anyone coming from the east towards Jerusalem would come through Jericho. So its location along trade routes was advantageous. But also Jericho itself was a very fertile region. Josephus called it a little paradise. 
Alfred Edersheim, after describing the city's groves of feathery palms and gardens of roses and its sweet-scented balsam plantations, calls it the Eden of Palestine, the very fairyland of the ancient world. I just get an idea of the prosperity that Jericho lived in. So not only is he the chief tax collector and therefore taking money, but he's chief tax collector in a city that saw lots of trade and a booming economic situation. This man probably had lots of money. So Zacchaeus most likely not only profited from all of his own collections, but the collections of all the other tax collectors. And as a result, he's probably the absolute last person that anyone in Jericho would have thought that Jesus would spend some time with. Daryl Bach points out, the people like Jesus' miracles, but they don't care so much for his personal associations. The crowd had learned very little through the course of Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus' earthly ministry continues to run contrary to what everyone expected. And if this is the charge that is leveled against Jesus, that he associates with sinners, he's guilty as charged. And aren't we glad that that's the case? There is no greater joy to us sinners than knowing that Jesus associates with sinners. And this is nothing new to Jesus' ministry. From the beginning days of Jesus' ministry, sitting at a well, talking to a Samaritan woman who had had many husbands, and the man that she was living with at the time wasn't even her husband. Jesus dialogues with this woman, and salvation comes to her, and through her, news spreads throughout her town. All the way to the end of Jesus' life, as he's hanging from the cross, and he has mercy and grace to extend to a thief hanging to his one side. You see, if we weren't if we weren't lost, he wouldn't have needed to come. If we were without sin, he wouldn't have to give us forgiveness. If we weren't sick, he wouldn't have to come as our physician. If we weren't dead, he wouldn't have to come and give us life. But since we are lost and sinful and sick and dead, Jesus came to find us to forgive us, to heal us, and to give us life. He came for Zacchaeus's. And praise the Lord that he did. For there would otherwise be no hope for me and no hope for you. Not only do we see Zacchaeus described, but we see him despised. Zacchaeus despised. And I'm sure a good amount of the crowd thought that Jesus was just passing through And if he were to stop, it would not be to see Zacchaeus. I'm sure there's a whole lot of economically prosperous people and well-to-do people and popular people and religious leaders amongst this crowd as Jesus walks through. And we get a feel for this crowd's thoughts about Zacchaeus in at least two ways. First of all, I'll start with the second one. When Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house to lodge with him, For a period of time, the crowds are simply astonished that Jesus would dine with Zacchaeus, and they refer to him as a sinner. This is so indicative of how things go. Isn't it fascinating how we can look around and become jealous and envious of God's grace and mercy extended to others, all the while operating under the assumption that we're deserving of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and attendance. 
We still do this today. We get upset when goodness is extended to others whom we think are unworthy of God's grace and forgiveness, all the while not recognizing that we ourselves are the ones who are unworthy. But we get a good sense of the crowd's opinion about Zacchaeus as they refer to him as the sinner. But prior to this, when Zacchaeus comes to see and find out who Jesus is, the crowd will make no room for him. They seem unconcerned with Zacchaeus' attempts to see Jesus, and they're certainly not going to aid him in his quest. Perhaps they don't mind standing in his way. You can kind of imagine the scene. You've maybe been to a parade or something like this before, and people gather around, and people are kind of pressing towards the front. But you can see Zacchaeus, and it seems indicated that this man is a man of small stature, so he's kind of short, and he's trying to press through so he can see. I mean, if he is short, he's not going to intrude anyone else's view, right? He could sit lower, and everyone would still be able to see. But they don't want to give him any help. They don't want to let him through. Indicates that we have a picture here with few to no friends at all. I wonder if some of the obstacles that Zacchaeus encountered on that day are at all meant to picture the obstacles that people have in general, the difficulty that they have in looking and coming to Christ. Not only do we know our own sins, but others know our sins quite often. And we may feel unworthy of an audience with Jesus. There's a sense in which we all should feel small of stature before God. For He being holy and we not. means on some level we should be humbled and broken before Him. But I wonder if any of this pictures sometimes the difficulty of, the, of men to come before Christ. Especially if they carry with them a whole lot of pride and arrogance. Certainly, Zacchaeus' next actions would not put him in any better a social situation. He had already endured a whole lot of negativity from people, I'm sure, up to this point in his life. But if he desired to maintain any amount of respectability, what he's about to do would have thrown that all to the wind. Think about it. Even now, how often have you seen a grown adult man climb a tree? How often do we see that happening? How often do you see a grown adult man just running? Not too often. And here we see both with Zacchaeus. He runs on ahead, sees a sycamore tree, and up it he climbs. Now that's given our present cultural situation. If you considered that cultural situation, the ideas of honor and shame are even greater in people's minds. Here Zacchaeus is throwing all caution to the wind. He doesn't mind being shamed as long as he can see Jesus. Why does Zacchaeus act with such resolve? Why does he come with such persistence? What prompts his actions? Was he absolutely a believer yet? Or was he just curious about Jesus? Perhaps it was because he knew that he fell short in a much more important way than just his vertical challengedness. He lacked right standing with God. He was short in that regard. He had fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And he hoped that Jesus might help him. He knew he was missing something. And he knew that his riches couldn't buy it for him. Edersheim says it so well. Certainly not curiosity only. Was it the, was it the long working conscience 
or a dim, scarcely self-avowed hope of something better? Or had he heard him before? Or of Jesus, that Jesus was so unlike those harsh leaders and teachers of Israel who refused all hope on earth and in heaven to such as him? That Jesus received, nay, called to him the publicans and sinners? Or was it only that nameless, deep, irresistible inward drawing of the Holy Ghost, which may perhaps have brought us, as it has brought many, we know not why or how, to the place and hour of eternal decision for God and of infinite grace to our souls. We don't know all that was going on inside of Zacchaeus' heart and mind. But what we do know is this, is we go from a man described and despised to now a man who is surprised. Zacchaeus gets the surprise of a lifetime and it changes his life forever. It's one thing to see Jesus. It's another for Jesus to see you. It's one thing to be watching a parade. It's quite another for the parade to stop and turn to you. It's one thing to be watching the president. It's another thing for the president to stop everything and address you personally. And what we have here is far greater than any parade or any president. Here we have Jesus in the flesh. God in the flesh walking. You see, Zacchaeus is merely hoping to get a view, a good view of Jesus as he passes by. And as he's perched up in his sycamore tree, we don't see any record of him shouting out at the top of his lungs like the blind beggars on the side of the road. You know, mercy me, son of, son of David. We don't see any of that. I wonder if on some levels, you know, he might be feeling some of the shame of sitting up in a sycamore tree. You know, if anyone already made fun of him or poked at his height, or probably having a heyday of this occasion, right? As it typically is the case, if we don't like someone and there's something easy to pick on, usually that becomes the thing that's picked on. I'm quite sure that Zacchaeus got his fair share of short jokes. He's sitting there up in top, inside of a tree looking like a little bird perched up on a branch. I'm sure he's not trying to bring a whole lot of attention to himself. And meanwhile, Jesus comes straight on over, stops underneath him, looks up. And then of all things, calls his name. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus! Come down. I must go to your house today. Jesus won't allow Zacchaeus to remain up in the tree. And he calls him down. Zacchaeus, we're told, comes down immediately with great joy. He's delighted to have Jesus come to his house. Because you see, meeting with Jesus changes everything for Zacchaeus. We don't know the moment. We don't know exactly how grace worked its way in and through Zacchaeus's heart and mind. But we do know this. By the end of this account, for certain we know this. That Zacchaeus's heart was changed and completely transformed by Jesus. And as the crowd begins grumbling about Jesus meeting with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus suddenly announces to everyone around, I'll give... Half of everything I have to the poor. And anyone that I have defrauded, I will pay them back four times what I've taken. The verbs come to us in present tense. Most translations here have, I will give half of my goods and I will pay back four times as much. The verbs literally in Greek are present tense. And so it's furnished some amount of discussion among theologians and exegetes as to how to understand this. I think ultimately what he's saying is this, is that there, 
this resolve is met with such immediacy that he can speak of it as already happening. I give half of what I have to the poor. I pay back four times as much that I have stolen from others. He works with suddenness. He works with immediacy. He doesn't wait on this obedience. Can I just pause here to say, there's a danger in waiting when God calls. There's a danger in hardening your heart against the sweet influences of God's calling. Certainly every time we consider the Gospel, every time we attend to preaching, there's an opportunity to respond We're always making a response one way or the other. There's such danger in waiting when Jesus calls. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, immediately, right now, hurriedly, come down, for I must go to your house. And then when in the house, Zacchaeus erupts with this present tense resolve and action. He doesn't put it on hold. He doesn't delay his obedience. You can say this on both levels. If you're lost right now, don't put off Christ. You don't know how many moments you've been granted. Don't delay in repenting and turning to Jesus. And for those who are saved, let me state it this way. There's also a danger in relationship to your sanctification. Don't delay in obedience. Obey immediately. Any other sort of obedience isn't really obedience anyway, is it? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Now, considering popular opinion about Zeke Zacchaeus, I wonder how long that list was of those whom he had defrauded. I wonder how much of his riches were due to ill-gotten gain. And he pledges a restitution that far exceeds the law's demand. Typically, what was required in such cases is that you made restitution by paying back what it was that you took, plus a fifth. 20%. 20% interest on what was taken. What does he offer here? Four times what he had stolen. That's some interest. I think this is just such a great glimpse of what grace does to the hardened heart. Zacchaeus is not concerned with, okay, let me look back here in the Old Testament and see if I can find out just how little I have to give back. His heart overflows as he experiences forgiveness from Jesus. And he can't help but show that outwardly. His restitution takes on a massively magnanimous character. He doesn't merely give back to those who he's defrauded either. What does he do? He also takes half of what he has and gives that away to the poor. I think this is also really helpful for us to see because, you see, in that moment, Zacchaeus recognized two truths. One, I'm not only at fault for those whom I've defrauded, but I'm also at fault for not taking the opportunity that God gave me to help those in need. Sometimes we refer to this as sins of commission or sins of omission. And here he's considering both. He's saying, not only have I done wrong in taking from people what is not rightfully mine, but secondly... God has given me all of these resources and I have hoarded them to myself. 
I have misused and mismanaged what God has given me. So not only must I pay back these people four times what I've given them, but I must also take of what has been given me by the Lord and distribute it to those who have need. You see, grace enables us to keep the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is upheld by God's grace. You see, understand, God's grace not only forgives us, but it empowers present obedience. Right? It empowers present obedience. It changes the heart. It changes the perspective. And here we have a covetous man becoming generous. The notorious tax collector becomes a legendary almsgiver. You see, rather than take advantage of people, Zacchaeus will now act for their advantage. There is just unmistakable, undeniable proof that nothing but the grace of God was in action here. This man became a broken man, but a man who is now forgiven and cleansed. And a man whose mind was once set upon riches, even to the expense of losing every friendship and every emotional comfort, now gives up that money in light of the relationship that he now enjoys with his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now money takes on a whole different ballgame. Now it's useful towards, as Jesus says in another place, towards making friends who will invite us into eternal dwellings. He now sees his resources as an opportunity to do good to others. And this man's repentance is unmistakably obvious. The idol of money and greed is removed. In its place, charity and kindness has now taken up residence. Let me ask this question. It's an important question. It's a searching question that we need to continually, not only just on a one-time level, but ongoingly consider I'll ask it personally. What do my finances say about my heart? What do my finances say about my heart? There can be wonderful, God-glorifying discussions regarding what is the tithe in the Old Testament and how does that relate to the New Testament and what is God's standards for obedience in these regards. We, we have that discussion to be helpful. However, I think if we go to the Scriptures looking for the minimal approach to these things, we've missed the whole point. God's grace enables generous giving. And generous giving comes from those who have received generosity. And if we're a Christian, we've received the ultimate generosity. We've received generosity from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And once you really do, this really settles in that I'm a steward. Everything I've been given is a gift from God to be used for His glory. Once that really settles in, it changes everything. And certainly I wouldn't want to steal from someone. But more than that, I want to make use of the gifts that God has given to me to help others who are in need. Well, the uninvited Zacchaeus now has an encounter with point number two, the uninvited Jesus. What we learn about this uninvited Jesus is that the gospel does make sons of outsiders, but the gospel, in order for it to do this, required that a son become an outsider. Jesus must come, first of all, to seek us, and second of all, Jesus must come to save us. 
He must come to seek us and he must come to save us. Here we see Jesus taking the initiative. Reminded of the text we had read this morning, 1 John 4. We love God because he first loved us. Yes. God takes the initiative. And Jesus declares his mission here at the end of this text. Famously, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus is on a search and a rescue mission. He must find us, and having found us, he must save us. So after seeking Zacchaeus out, Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree, explains that he must come to Zacchaeus' house. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus is demanding to stay with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus joyfully responds. I think this is because Jesus not only knows Zacchaeus' name, but he knows Zacchaeus' heart. And Jesus shows interest in an unwanted, unloved tax collector. And that interest and that love melts Zacchaeus' heart. Of course he'll have Jesus to his house. But what's so glorious about this is that Jesus' offer extends beyond physical lodging for a night. In a sense, it's Jesus here who is hosting Zacchaeus. He's saying, you're going to host me, Zacchaeus. But in another sense here, it's the other way around. Jesus is hosting Zacchaeus. He's inviting the uninvited. Zacchaeus is the outsider who's now being met with the warmest of welcomes. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, Jesus loved Zacchaeus when nobody else did. He was Zacchaeus' friend, even when no one else was. Because Jesus was showing people what God's love was like, His wonderful, never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Have you ever been graced with an uninvited guest? Have you ever been an uninvited guest? What do we have here? Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. He's not asking. He's telling. Now, it's quite the social faux pas to invite yourself over somewhere. Although I've done it a few times with some close friends, there is one occasion which I can't help but share this morning. During my freshman year at Texas A&M, I had only a bike. I had no car, which meant for any college student in that situation, you can't just drive anywhere you want. You can ride anywhere your bike can get you. And then you start to evaluate whether or not it's worth going to wherever you think you're going to go if you have to ride your bike there. And so I would get I would get rides from several people back home on weekends and this, that and the other. I'll never forget a trip that I took to see a good friend of mine named John. John was located some way away and I didn't have a car and he knew it. And so he said, well, I'll set you up with transportation. We've got a couple of people that go to A&M and they live here in the area. And so we'll give you a ride. So he gets this girl named Nikki who he was good friends with, to give me a ride over to his house. We travel over an hour to get there. And once we arrive, by knocking on the door, John is nowhere to be found. We make phone calls. John doesn't answer his phone. And there I find myself in the very uncomfortable position of having nowhere to go in a town that I don't know anyone in. Besides, kind of, this now new acquaintance, Nikki. 
Nikki kindly gives me a ride to her house. And I meet her mother. And I sit down in their family room and I talk with her for a little while. Nikki gets a call from a friend of hers who has a personal emergency. And crying, off Nikki goes. I'm left in this house with a woman I've just met talking. That is until she has to leave. I am now sitting in someone's house that I've never met before, greeting other family members as they come home. I met dad, I met brother number one and brother number two at separate times. Separate times. I'm sitting in the living room reading a book as they enter. I am so thankful they did, they believe my crazy story and didn't just shoot me on the spot as an intruder. I always remember, though, they're, they're so super kind to me. And believe it or not, John comes back into town around 5 o'clock that evening. And we have dinner together with this family. And it was so nice because I didn't have to give them a hard time. They did. I don't know if that says about me. But what was so wonderful about the entire experience is, while I felt completely out of place, I had was an uninvited visitor and guest, I felt quite at home by the way they had extended grace and a place for me. It wasn't a fun position, though, to be in that awkward, uninvited spot. You see, Zacchaeus experienced that everywhere he went. He was the perpetually uninvited person. Nobody had time for Zacchaeus. There was no one that was going to, oh yes, go ahead, just make yourself at home here. That wasn't going to happen for him. But Jesus changes all that when he pays him the highest compliment in telling him that he's coming to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus takes the role here of Zacchaeus. Jesus becomes the uninvited guest. And he allows Zacchaeus to play host to him. This must is interesting too. I must come to your house. Indicates Jesus' saving purpose for Zacchaeus. He had plans for Zacchaeus. He came seeking and saving the lost. And of those names that Jesus came to save, Zacchaeus was one of them. I must come to your house. Jesus' whole life had that kind of divine mandate to it. He willingly submitted to the Father in every detail, and he joyfully did his Father's work. Everything he did had that sense of urgency and must to it. He said in Luke 4, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. I was sent for this purpose. He says in John 4, it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria where he would meet the woman at the well. Jesus said in John 10, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Paul spoke in similar terminology. I am under compulsion for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. There is a sense of divine necessity and mandate behind Jesus' ministry. And Zacchaeus is one of those. Zacchaeus was someone that Jesus had come to meet and to save. So Jesus doesn't so much ask Zacchaeus to come to his house. He tells Zacchaeus how it must be. And then he tells Zacchaeus, get this, hurry up. <laughs> I'm going to your house. I must go to your house and hurry down the tree. Come on. It's time to go. 
I think it's a great little illustration of the doctrine we refer to as irresistible grace or effectual calling. How God draws our souls to Him by the work of the Holy Spirit in such a manner that our salvation is not left up for grabs. It's not left up for grabs. Jesus must meet with Zacchaeus. He must be at his house. And note what Zacchaeus does. He joyfully complies. He couldn't think of anything better. I wonder how many of us were once as Zacchaeus and many of us were settled into a perch in a sycamore tree and by some surprising providence, Jesus called our name and He drew us to life. And we can't resist. What do I mean by that? I mean that our wills are transformed by a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not that there isn't another choice. We still make a choice. But our nature has been so transformed that we would never choose the alternative. We've been so changed inwardly that there's no way we're walking away from Jesus. You see, once the heart is transformed and inclined to receive Jesus, when Jesus then calls, the sinner responds. Put it this way. Lots, a lot is made of Revelation 3 and Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Sometimes there's a missing of the context there and his... I mean, that's really a crazy story. I mean, think about it for just a minute. It's like saying this. He's talking to a church. He's saying Jesus is outside of your church knocking on the door wanting to come in. A statement of judgment on the church. But, but there is a sense here in which Jesus does stand at the door and knock. But this is sometimes the thing that people don't also consider. That Jesus is also working on the inhabitant such that the inhabitant wants to open the door. He changes the nature of the sinner in such a way that He opens the door. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 Matthew Henry says it well. Jesus brings His own welcome. He opens the heart and inclines it to receive Him. You see, there was work being done on Zacchaeus' heart before ever Jesus said, I must come to your house. First, the heart became inclined towards receiving Jesus. The outward call came to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus joyfully, hurriedly receives Christ. It is so comforting to know that God is seeking the lost because if it weren't that way, there would be no hope for us. We've said it many times before, but Romans 3 is so crystal clear about this. There's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So if God is not a seeking God, there's no hope for us. Praise the Lord. He seeks the lost. I got to chuckle about this. You don't even see Zacchaeus saying, okay, yes, Jesus, you can come over. But, ladies, be honest. How many of you would be like, Jesus, give me a few minutes to tidy things up first. You're about to invite Jesus into your house, right? Hurry, 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 clean things up. Zacchaeus is not concerned about that. And now I'll go from the physical to the spiritual. He's not concerned about tidying up his life either. Jesus come. Jesus receives Zacchaeus just as he is. And his grace forgives him. And his grace operates in such a way that he never leaves him the same either. You see, when Jesus enters in, everything must change. I wonder if this even whole idea of Jesus not asking Zacchaeus to come over... 
Well, it's a great picture of irresistible grace and all the rest. I just think on another, just a practical level, would Zacchaeus ever have dreamed that Jesus would come over to his house? Would he have ever asked Jesus to come to his house? This man who was so ostracized by everyone else, I don't think he would ever dream that he could have Jesus in his house had Jesus not told him, I'm coming. Isn't it glorious that that's how God can work in our hearts? That when we feel so ashamed of our sin and so beat down, that there is grace and forgiveness for us from a glorious Savior. You see, Jesus has to come seek us And He also must come to save us. He came to seek and to save because Jesus knew that this man's ailment wouldn't be fixed by money. And Jesus had the cure that would take care of this man, no problem. And that's why He came. Hallelujah that Jesus came to dwell with sinful men. Again, listen, we had this read this morning as well. John 1. He came to His own And those who were his own did not receive him. Was Jesus invited to the sinful world by us? If he was waiting for an open invitation, would we have ever given it to him? He came as the uninvited guest to our world. And he was on a mission. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus didn't come to commiserate with in our wickedness. I mean, that's the, that's the insinuation that the religious leaders are trying to get at. I mean, this guy dines with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. They're insinuating that Jesus is approving of their sinfulness. And he's engaging in it. That's their insinuation. But that's not at all what he came to do. He didn't come to commiserate in our wickedness. He came to give us the blessing of forgiveness by sharing in his death and resurrection. You see what Jesus did is he identified with us that we might be granted identification with him. He became the uninvited guest so that we, he could invite us to dine with him. Jesus openly declares here at the end of this account that salvation has come to this house. Jesus announces that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is a son of Abraham. And by that, he's not talking about physical lineage. There were many people around there that had Abraham's blood in their veins. They were descendants of Abraham. What Jesus is pointing to is that this man had the faith of Abraham. And just as Abraham was declared righteous before God because he believed God, it was on the basis of God's grace through faith that this salvation occurred. So it is the case in this account Zacchaeus isn't saved because he gave his money away. He's not saved because he gave four times as much as he had extorted. Those are just expressions of the saved heart. Salvation happened by grace through faith alone. Jesus came to Zacchaeus while he was still chief tax collector, extortioner extraordinaire. He comes to Zacchaeus just as Zacchaeus is. But having met with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is forever changed. And so it is with us. What wonderful news that Jesus is seeking and saving people in the same way today. Receiving them just the way they are, warts, sin, and all, and yet never leaving them that way. What a great reminder that no one is beyond Jesus' ability to save. Last week, the blind 
beggars on the side of the road provided us with such a beautiful picture of saving faith in action. Remember, they come to Jesus. He asks them, what do you want? They don't ask for a couple nickels. They ask for what? Eyes. They look to Jesus alone to cure their ailment. Here Zacchaeus gives us an equally stunning illustration of repentance. Prior account, great illustration of faith here, great illustration of repentance. Now let me just say this. Where there is genuine salvation, both are intertwined. There is no real genuine repentance without real genuine faith, and there is no real genuine faith without real genuine repentance. They come together. Even if we look at them separately, they are united together. How can we ever tire of this wonderful story? There's no other gospel than the message that lost, rebellious sinners can find grace when they are emptied of themselves and of their own attempts to amass religious credentials and try to save themselves. The one quality that those whom Jesus saves have in common is their lowly status. Even Zacchaeus, as wealthy as he was, was lowly. Yes, he was a short man, but his physical stature pointed to a much greater reality, and that is that he fell short of the glory of God. He was a sinner in need of grace. So Zacchaeus found himself on the outside, uninvited. The good news is, is to such uninvited people, the lowly, the outcasts, the lonely, Jesus came. He came to save the poor in spirit. He came to save blind beggars. He came to save extorting tax collectors. There's no one outside of his reach and no one beyond his ability to save. I agree with C.H. Spurgeon who said, I love to preach a sinner's gospel for it suits myself. Brothers and sisters, what is there to depend upon except the sinner's Savior? If he does not save sinners as sinners by an act of free, rich, sovereign mercy, altogether apart from anything that is in them and of them, where will you and I ever appear? You see, Zacchaeus endured the shame of climbing a tree to see his Savior. His Savior endured the greatest shame imaginable by climbing a tree to save him. While a watching crowd hurled insults and mocked him, Jesus won the victory over sin and death for those who will look to him for salvation when he died on the cross and rose triumphant from the grave. Jesus didn't mind being shamed or disowned as long as he might please his Father in seeking and saving a great host of redeemed sinners as a display of God's wonderful mercy and grace. You see, Zacchaeus would attempt to make up for wrongs done, but Jesus would make right all wrongs done. As Augustine said, all were lost from the moment the one man sinned, in whom the whole race was contained, the whole race was lost. One man without sin came. He would save them from their sin. Thank God for His Son, the guest that none of us invited, but all of us need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the glorious reminder that You have never let go of the people that You have created that you're not some God as the deists would assume, that you've set things spinning and then gone off to do other things, but that you are intimately involved in the world you've created. 
And you've demonstrated your love to the whole world by sending your Son. And thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating your love and grace and mercy to us. Because we're all a bunch of blind beggars and we're all a bunch of Zacchaeuses. We are in need of you. And thank you for not waiting until we invited you because the invitation would have never come. Thank you for changing our hearts and drawing us unto yourself. Making us both willing and able to receive the invitation you've given us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.